0: Hello, and welcome. This is 21. Episode 12.1. Wait, what are we doing? Frantically, you cut down another tree. You can't believe you have to do this again. This is not what you envisioned you would have to do when you enlisted in the Roman army. You had heard glorious tales of conquest, plunder, and the riches from the far-flung territory known as Gaul. The year is 52 BC. You had signed up for the reinforcement army that was going up with General Gaius Julius Caesar in southern Gaul, just beyond the mountains of Italy. You were a shopkeeper in Rome you own and ran a small grocery-slash-bakery. Business had been kinda slow for the past few years, and in an attempt to increase your personal honor, increase your business, and gain some personal wealth for you and your family, you had decided to join the army. The Centurion who came by your store a few months ago told you that the reason your business was slow was because there were plenty of soldiers and soldiers' families who lived in your area and that if you were a soldier too, they would shop at your store. Convinced you needed to do something to change your course, you signed up. The centurion told you that this was the perfect time to go. Julius Caesar had asked for reinforcements as he attempted to pacify and reconquer Gaul. There were rumors coming down of a number of Gaelic tribes rising up against the Romans. It wouldn't matter how many of them there are, the centurion had told you. These barbarians were no match for the might of Rome. After getting your commission, you went to the barracks to begin your training. You were going to be an archer, as your bad knee wouldn't allow you to be a traditional legionary. Your training, therefore, was not as long as traditional legionaries. You finished within a few months and headed out with the first cohorts of reinforcements to join Julius Caesar. The march from Rome to Gaul is not easy. As you pass through the Alps, you can easily imagine Hannibal and his army taking the same paths that you are through the mountains. Even though it's been a few centuries since Hannibal, you swear you can still see the outlines of elephant carcasses frozen in the snow. About a decade has passed and now you're here, wondering if it's just your imagination again as you frantically try to build another wall, this time around yourselves. This has to be the craziest decision in military history, you think to yourself. This is turning into a siege within a siege, whose will, hunger, or thirst is going to break first. The Gauls in the city you're besieging? Yours and the Romans? Over the next week, the Roman army finishes the walls surrounding your camp. You look around you and you wonder if this is truly one of the weirdest sights ever to befall man. To your left is a wall, and to your right is another wall. The space in between is your world for the foreseeable future. Now, it has become a life-and-death situation, if it wasn't already. With the relieving Gaelic army on the outside of the outer wall, and the other Gaelic army trapped in the city inside the inner wall, you wonder how history will view this event. How your future generations will see you and your sacrifice. Will they see it as a momentous Roman military victory? Or as a moment of madness that cost countless Roman lives and kept the war in Gaul continuing for years if not decades to come? This moment of madness was ordered by Julius Caesar and is the twelfth wonder of the ancient world, the walls around Elysia. Now those of you who know your Roman or even military history probably know about the Battle of Elysia. It's one of the most famous battles in history, most notably for the walls that Julius Caesar ordered around the city and then his army. But before we get ahead of ourselves, As always, context first. The context for the 12th wonder of the ancient world begins in 58 BC. In 58 BC, a number of Gallic tribes in Gaul rebelled against Rome and tried to throw the Roman army out. This rebellion caught the Romans and Julius Caesar, who was in charge of Gaul, off guard. Julius Caesar was a member of the Triumvirate, one of the three men who ruled Rome. He ruled alongside Crassus and Pompey. This style of leadership for Rome was something brand new, and as such, caused all sorts of political turmoil in Rome. This ongoing political turmoil is what had Julius Caesar's attention, and partly why the rebellion of the Gauls caught him so off guard. He was so focused on Rome and what was happening there, that as a result his army was exposed spread out and vulnerable and the gaelic tribes who had welcomed his help not that long ago were now seeking to destroy him the first few battles in the conflict against the gauls were overwhelmingly successful for the romans despite the numerous gaelic tribes they fought with each other as much as they fought the romans The fractured nature of the Gauls was probably the most encouraging thing about the war in Gaul as it began. The first tribe that the Romans faced were the Helvetii. Migrating west into Gaul, modern-day France, from modern-day Switzerland, these people were not looking for a war against Rome. They repeatedly told the Romans that they came in peace and were just looking for better land and a better opportunity for their people. Caesar himself wrote about the plea that the Helvetii put before him. He said that, Their sole intention was to march through the province, which is Gaul, without causing any disturbance of the peace, and only for the reason that no other route lay open to them, and that for this they humbly solicited his leave. But Julius Caesar was having none of it. The Helvetii were defeated easily by the Romans. The route was so severe that the Helveti were forced all the way back to their original homeland. The attack on the peaceful Helveti brought much criticism from Rome. The Roman Senate began making claims that Julius Caesar was acting untoward and should be stripped of any political standing in Rome. To them, his attack on the Helveti was just an excuse to take further military action in Gaul. But whatever his reasons were, Julius Caesar was now militarily committed in Gaul. And there were uprisings and revolts popping up all over the place which demanded his attention. In 56 BC, a revolt by the Veneti people in northwestern Gaul captured Caesar's attention. They had some other tribes in the area allied with them, and posed a serious threat. The Romans did eventually reconquer the Veneti, but it was a very difficult campaign. And the Romans treated the Veneti very harshly, attempting to send a message to the rest of the Gaelic tribes, don't fight Rome, this is what happens. But the leaders of the Gaelic tribes did not get this message, instead they got something completely different. If they united against Rome and put all their small differences aside, they might be able to push the Romans out of Gaul once and for all. Caesar, on the other hand, confident after back-to-back resounding Roman victories, decided to split his army up to go on more minor campaigns rather than one or two big ones. In 55 BC, he bridged the Rhine River, which was no easy task, and took his army into mainland Germany. The following year, he even decided to invade Britannia. But more unrest back in mainland Gaul, forced Caesar to abandon his invasion and return to Gaul. This time, it was the Belgae and the Nervi who rose up against the Romans, and started causing havoc. They invaded Roman settlements, attacked supply chains, and just made themselves a general nuisance. This was another uprising that was more difficult to put down than Caesar anticipated. Putting down this rebellion was very costly for both the Romans and the Gauls, and things quieted down after this for a few years. But this was just the calm before the storm. And boy, was a storm coming. The Gauls began to realize that they could not beat the Roman invaders in pitched battles. Pitched battles were battles where armies lined up opposite each other, and the battle was a controlled affair. What the Gauls were good at would be called guerrilla warfare. Ambushes, sneak attacks, and night raids. If they could confuse and rattle the Roman army, they stood a chance. Using their local knowledge of the terrain to their advantage. But no matter what they did, they needed to change the face of the war. And the biggest way to do that was to do the one thing that they hadn't been able to do. Unite. Now, the Gaelic tribes had plenty of differences and arguments amongst each other, but the only chance that they stood against Rome would be as one instead of separate. This is where our story picks up. The Gaelic tribes decided to unite to try to force the Romans out of Gaul. To lead them, they turned to the chief of the Arveni, and a man by the name of Vercingetorix. He would prove to be a formidable adversary, earning remarks of praise from Julius Caesar himself. He turned the Gaelic forces, which were primitive and tentative compared to the Romans, into a fierce and ferocious fighting force that demanded respect. The turnaround of the Gaelic army was so impressive that in 53 BC, the Gauls went on the offensive. After a few small raids Vercingetorix led the Gaelic forces against the Roman town of Cenabum. This attack was incredibly successful for the Gauls. They killed the entire Roman population of the town and captured large amounts of grain. This loss was critical for Julius Caesar, as grain stores like the one at Cenabum were vital to keeping his army fed during the war. Caesar responded against Vercingetorix. In early 52 BC, Caesar led his forces to Cinnabon. But as spring approached, Vercingetorix made the smart move. He knew he wasn't able to defeat the Romans in a pitched battle. Instead, sitting on the food he just captured, decided to wait out the Romans and let them starve before engaging in a serious battle. He kept what food he would need for himself and his army, and destroyed the rest. Caesar himself commented on the strategic move by his Gaelic counterpart, quote, the supreme object of the Gauls should be to deprive the Romans of fodder and provisions, and owing to their superior cavalry, as well to the time of year, neither of these tasks should prevent much difficulty, quote. Throughout the spring of 52 BC, Caesar and his legions went from town to town in a desperate search for food and supplies. They sacked several Gaelic towns and took whatever provisions they found. All throughout the spring and early summer of 52 BC, Caesar and Vercingetorix did a delicate dance around each other throughout Gaul, increasing the tension and setting the stage for one decisive battle in which the fate of Gaul would be. This battle would happen at the Gaelic city of Elysia. Elysia was a hilltop city in north-central modern-day France. The situation at Elysia was increasingly desperate but promising for Vercingetorix and the Gauls, and the opposite for the Romans. Vercingetorix and his men now found themselves in need of provisions, after the Romans had run around and cleaned out a number of smaller Gaelic towns. But in the good news department for Vercingetorix, a number of Gaelic tribes who had previously been allied with Rome had decided to switch sides. So now, Vercingetorix had access to more men and provisions, more than enough to defeat the Romans. There was only one problem. He and his army were already inside Elysia, and the Romans were on the outside. The stage was being set for not only one of the largest battles in the ancient world, but for one of the most important. If Rome could be defeated here, Gaul would forever pose a threat to Rome as long as it remained unconquered. Now the number of troops for both sides in this encounter were massive. Both men had gathered their full forces at Elysia. The Romans had anywhere from 50,000 to 70,000 men, but they were up against an army of 80,000 Gaelic troops, reinforced by 15,000 cavalry. Elysia would not be an easy nut to crack for the Roman siege. When Vercingetorix had arrived at the city, he brought all the food from the surrounding area into the city. But the problem was the number of men. Having such a large army is great in a pitched battle. But having a large army trying to withstand a siege is incredibly difficult. But Julius Caesar was aware of the difficult task in front of him. He described the city as follows, The town of Elysia, at which the two rival armies had now met for the final conflict, was perched on the summit of a high plateau, so steep that its capture otherwise than my investment was practically impossible. It is here, outside the city of Elysia, where the twelfth wonder of the ancient world was built. When Julius Caesar and his army arrived outside Elysia, he immediately began the siege process. The Romans were amazing field engineers, maybe the best in history. They could take any terrain, situation, and if given enough time, Could turn any battlefield to their advantage. And Elysia would be no different. The first thing the Romans did was build an 11 mile long or 18 kilometer wall around the entire city. The wall was made of dirt and reinforced with wood. The wall itself stood three and a half meters or 12 feet tall. There were 33 watchtowers constructed on the wall one about every 80 feet. There were also ramparts and a number of other obstacles in the way of anyone who wanted to get out of Elysia. There were what were called stimuli, wooden boxes with iron spikes. There were what were called lilies, not flowers. These were pits that were dug and filled with stakes and spikes. There were also two trenches, dug around the outside of the wall and filled with water. Anyone attempting to get out of Elysia would have to cross all of that before getting to the wood and dirt wall. So escape from Elysia quickly became not an option for Vercingetorix and his men. Anyone who even thought about approaching the walls would be slowed down and easily picked off by the Roman archers and artillery. I have some pictures of what these fortifications would have looked like up on the website 21wonderspodcast.com. While these were made of wood and dirt, they are certainly formidable. And we will see just how formidable dirt can be made to be with another wonder on this list. But I won't spoil that here. Now if these were the only siege works constructed by the Romans at Elysia, then we would not be here. While this barrier that completely surrounded Elysia was impressive, it does not merit the title of wonder of the ancient world. What elevates Julius Caesar's walls around Elysia to the status of wonder is what he decided to do next. With Vercingetorix and about 80,000 Gaelic troops trapped in Elysia, news came in that was even more troubling. The remaining Gaelic tribes were gathering an even larger force to break the siege and relieve the pressure on Vercingetorix. Julius Caesar himself claimed that up to 250,000 men were on their way to Elysia to lift the siege. While this number seems a little high, it is no doubt a large number that did come to relieve the city. Julius Caesar was already outnumbered by Vercingetorix's men alone. But now, he was outnumbered by what could be as many as three to one. And desperate times call for desperate measures and a desperate measure is exactly what julius caesar resorted to as the gaelic relief army approached he told his men to build a second wall this time around them entrapping them between the two sets of walls the second wall was 22 and a half kilometers or 14 miles long and went around the entire roman position around the city There was plenty of room to maneuver between the walls, though. When the relief army got there, if they tried to attack a particular spot, men and equipment could be moved with relative ease to the attack spot. In front of this outside wall, he did the same thing he did with the interior wall. He dug ditches, filled them with water, he dug pits, filled them with spikes, and did anything else he could to slow down an assault. With both walls complete, Julius Caesar did the only thing he could do now. Wait. He had more supplies than Vercingetorix and the Gauls trapped in Alesia, But if the Romans ran out of supplies, or if the Gaelic relief army breached the walls, then this would all be for nothing. Caesar knew that his life, the life of his men, and maybe more importantly to him, his political career, were there trapped within the walls outside Elysia with him. I can only imagine the look on the faces of the Gaelic Relief Army leaders when their scouts reported back to them what awaited them. Siege works were to be expected, but this was frankly ridiculous. A double wall with the enemy in the middle. This is the only time in history that I am aware of where the besieger became the besieged. With such a large relief army, the thing which any normal military commander would do would be to break off the siege and head for safer ground, where he could await reinforcement of his own. But not Julius Caesar. This must have seemed like madness to the Gauls both inside and outside Alesia, and even to Julius Caesar's own men trapped between the walls. But it would turn out to be a stroke of genius, and would propel Julius Caesar into stardom and rock the Roman Republic so hard that it would reshape Western civilization as we know it. Julius Caesar's walls around Elysia were some of the most impressive fortifications and siege works ever built. They were built in the field, which makes them even more impressive. They were not planned out or allocated for. The Romans arrived outside Elysia, assessed the situation, and decided this was the best course. Frankly, to wall yourself in being the best course, I would hate to imagine that scenario. And had the Romans been soundly defeated, we would not be here either. But instead, we are here, as the resulting battle would be a miraculous Roman triumph. But we will cover the resulting Battle of Alesia next week. This moment of madness Trapping his army between two walls would end up in history as one of the boldest moves that paid off and launched Julius Caesar into a world-changing career.